Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for DC Spotlight for the week of March 8th, 2022. Man, I thought it was a fantastic week. I can't remember this good of a week. I I, I think I enjoyed every book. Uh, and that's saying something because we got a couple that I really haven't enjoyed that much, um, typically. But I thought some of the best issues of, of even the, the books that typically I haven't liked. So I don't know. What did, what did you think, Rocky? Uh, well, there's uh, – yeah. No, it actually is, is pretty good here. Uh, and the ones, the ones that I'll be – you know, that I have some issues with their constructive criticisms. They're not really like, you know, some I might vent a little bit on, but, uh, you know, for the most part, they were okay. One, I didn't, I just sort of skim read a bit, but we'll get to it. But yeah, overall, I'm, you know, I was, I was, I was more content than I usually am for DC week. Yeah. It started off for me, uh, with Batgirls and I, you know, I typically haven't been enjoying Batgirls that much. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to talk about Batgirls anymore because I just I don't want to say anything that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, I know the creators are, try, are trying their best, but it's just not working. I was like, but let me, you know, let me like skim it so I have some idea. And I like got sucked in and I'm like, oh, my God, it's the best issue so far. I still not a big fan of the art and it's that whole ink splatter, but we'll get to it when we talk about it. Uh, but it does raise an interesting point. Um, I got called out by somebody in a in a direct message uh accusing me of being well two things being negative and disrespectful uh but also basically being a brown noser saying that i i sugarcoat my reviews uh because i'm looking to get interviews so uh i i took offense to that uh anybody who knows me knows that that's not what i'm about dc wants to grant me interviews they can grant me interviews if they don't they don't have to I will say that 99% of the interviews I get, I don't go through DC. In all the time I've been doing this, I've had like two or three interviews that have, I've gone through DC publicity. I reach out to the creators themselves, and if they want to come on and talk to me, they can. And if they don't, they don't have to. Uh, but I'm not kissing anybody's butt trying to get people on my show. So just putting that out there. Uh, anyway, that being said, let's kick it off with the first book. 
Man, this was fantastic. I'm disappointed there's only one issue left. It's the Joker. It's issue number 13. James Tynan, the fourth, is the writer. Giuseppe Camancoli handles the art on the issue. Cam Smith on inks. Eric Prianto on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. We do have a, a punchline backup. Here's another one of those stories I haven't really been enjoying that much. Uh, but even this backup this time was uh, I didn't like it and I liked it. And I'll explain when I when I get to it. But uh, it's written by James Tynan along with Sam Johns. The art is by Bell and Ortega, colors by Luis Guerrero, le uh, letters by Becca Carey. So the main series, again, um, I don't know what else I can say about how fantastic this is. This is not a story about the Joker, but rather the consequences of the Joker's actions and, and decisions he's made. And uh, there's a there's a line in here when uh, he's finally confronted by vengeance and she's talking about how she's compelled to kill him. And he's he's sort of trying to mess with her head like he tries to mess with everybody's. And, you know, she mentions Jim Gordon. He's like, oh, James, we you know, we've had such a, a wonderful time, you know, him and his ginger kids and whatnot. And that's been what this series has been about. It's been about the way the Joker has affected people and, you know, the ways that he gets under people's skin. <laughs> we certainly see that here. Uh, because he's definitely gotten under vengeance's skin. But in her defense, and she says this, you know, she's like, I've been programmed to hate you. I've been programmed to want to kill you. And I just, I'm going to do it so that I can be free. And again, the Joker's trying to use that. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, but the whole Samson family who this issue sort of focused on is, it, it's interesting from that perspective too, how the Joker has affected them because for all the terrible things the Joker's done throughout his career, and you know, obviously the list is long, he actually what what the Samson family is after him for, he actually didn't have anything to do with. And there's a delicious irony in that. You know, they want to eat him, they want to kill him, they want him to no longer exist uh, because they think he caused a day, and he didn't. But yet they want to punish him for it. So, yeah, this is great. It's ramping up. We don't actually see Jim Gordon in this one. Uh, but it's ramping up to a, an interesting finale. The artwork by Cam and Coley is fantastic. There's, uh, I think, obviously my favorite panel, probably your favorite panel as well, Rocky, when uh, Vengeance confronts the Samson family and they all go running out and uh, <laughs> the old guy's like, yeah, uh, show her what the Samson family's made of, Billy. And she literally just punches <laughs> Billy's head off. Like, yeah. that was awesome. That had me laughing out loud. I was like, hell Yeah. yeah get you yeah. some vengeance that, that was buddy fan. it was buddy samson buddy yeah buddy <laughs> and um i'm a big fan of vengeance i like vengeance more than i like bane like i i think i don't know if, just, if the gender bending makes it work or the fact that she's more conflicted you know uh about what she's doing i don't know i find her to be what i'm not the biggest bane fan he's he's always been like his motivations to me aren't you know they're not that interesting uh, I'm, I think she's a much more interesting character, so I'm definitely a fan. I, I like this issue a lot. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the backup in a second, but I'll, I'll give you a chance, Rocky, to talk about the main here. Yeah, it, it's it's funny. This is uh, this issue 13 of The Joker, and frankly, uh, this issue was – it's just it, – it's basically just – it starts off with the, showing the, the, the banquet. and It's like the billionaire elite has showed up at the Samson's family home, and it's basically they're, they're – they're they're cannibals and they're they it starts off with them you know taking out eyeballs and chewing on eyeballs and 
and it looks like Joker, literally Joker, is on the main menu, and he's being sort of like, you know, the the Samson family minions are outside, you know, warming up the barbecue, barbecuing. I I can't imagine, although, although it looks like hamburgers and hot dogs, you think it's probably some kind of human remains of something, and and, and Joker's on the menu, and and basically the issue just. Uh, consists of the Joker sort of psychologically getting into the head of his captors and he ultimately escapes. Meanwhile, of course, Samson is giving a speech and 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 throughout the dialogue as Samson speaks to all his honored guests that are there to witness them essentially eat the Joker, it's sort of a recap of the series so far. So in terms of saying, you know, how they got to that point. Meanwhile, Vengeance is well on her way to take to, you know, to confront the Joker and and that's ultimately that's ultimately what happens. And of course, vengeance. Of course, there's that altercation. The Samson family comes out. Vengeance knocks off Buddy Buddy Samson's head. The Grandpa Samson runs back into the safe house. <laughs> he needs a safe spot, a safety zone. And of course, Joker escapes. Vengeance confronts the Joker, and we and ultimately Bane shows up at the end to finally have a dialogue with his daughter, which you know he confirms. He refers to Vengeance as his daughter, saying, "It's time to talk, daughter." And so this is kind of a major, sort of a like a a major event. So Bane clearly knows that Vengeance is his daughter because I, I perhaps that was sort of a question mark because we weren't sure was Vengeance Vengeance. Was suggested she was just a clone, and that, and because we thought Bane was dead, that if Vengeance was just a clone of Bane, maybe, and we thought Bane was dead, it was not entirely clear if Bane was even aware that he had a daughter, and if she's just a clone of Bane, why would Bane refer to her as his daughter? So maybe she's more than just a clone. Maybe she's, you know, there, there's more secrets perhaps yet to be revealed in the relationship between Vengeance and Bane. So there's more questions here, but it's the right type of questions that keep me engaged in the story. And I like it, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next issue. Yeah, I took, I kind of took it that she was grown in the lab as well, because uh, uh, that's what it seemed like. But yeah, if he's saying daughter, I mean, you're right to to bring it up. Like maybe they took some of his DNA and they took some female DNA and they put it together and grew her in a lab, or was what we saw in the lab with the, you know, the immersion tanks or whatever was that like after she already was like a biological child that Bane had at some point and they took her and put her in that tank to to augment her and her programming or whatever or was she actually grown like yeah you're right we don't we don't actually know the answers to those questions so yeah, yeah interesting uh the backup like I said I liked it and I didn't so what I what I liked about it I mean part of the th- problem that I've had with the story all along is it isn't the, necessarily the story it, itself in terms of like a technically well put together comic. Cause I, th- I think that we both agree when um, I can't remember uh, Sweeney boo, I think was the previous artist. And we, both of yeah. you and I thought that she, her aesthetic wasn't really working that well for kind of the darker story. They're trying to tell her art is really kind of upbeat and happy. Yeah. So I think the Bill and Ortega art, you know, works better. The pacing has been not the best either at times. And I feel like it's because uh, Tynan and, uh, John's had to stretch this out to make it fit. Okay. The, the Joker series is going to be 14 issues. We got to make this punchline backup last 14 issues as well. And it's probably not an, uh, a story that needed 14 issues yeah. for backup. So <laughs> it's, it has slowed down and sped up to sort of fit that, that time frame. And I think that's been a, an issue as well. But that being said, you know, we're coming down to the end here. We get the verdict in the punchline trial and it, it, it angered like 
the story in a way it it, it angered me like uh, I, it elicited an emotional response and that's what good stories are supposed to do right like yeah and i've talked about this at the very beginning how it felt almost too real and too relatable that somebody like punchline could do the horrible thing she did but then you know alternate truth or fake news or whatever the term you want to use where she's going to get away with it you know yeah. and that mm-hmm. <laughs> just Oh, it's so frustrating. And <laughs> especially uh, if you it, don't it, like the character. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's not even necessarily that I think she's a, a terrible character, but I think what she stands for is so despicable, you know? So again, I think even in that way, I haven't maybe haven't given her as fair of a shake as I, as I maybe could have, because again, she's working in terms of what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to be that she's supposed to be repulsive. She's supposed to be unlikable because of what she stands for. So I think what I liked about this story is we did have some people who previously, uh, specifically Colin, um, Bluebird's brother, Colin Rowe, who has sort of wised up in a way, right? He's not letting the wool be pulled over his eyes in terms of the relationship he had with the kid who's uh, mixed up with the Royal Flush Gang. Like, it's like, okay, finally, you're, you're acknowledging reality, right? Like these choices you've been making have just been, for lack of a better word, just stupid. You know, and I get it. People make mistakes and, you know, he's he's a young kid and maybe doesn't have the life experience. But it's it's always frustrating for me to read a story where people just keep making dumb decision after dumb decision. Um, and so, you know, I, again, it's necessary for conflict and drama and all that kind of stuff. So seeing some of these people wise up and more people, you know, kind of falling on that side of, hey, yeah, th- she's bad. Let's you know get rid of her. But then the verdict comes in and I was just. Uh, you know, but hopefully, I mean, I would rather her be found guilty, get thrown in jail and escape. I, I'd rather that I just would feel better about myself, you know, feel better about justice in the DCU. Uh, yeah. But who knows? Who, who who knows what ultimately will happen? But it looks like she's going to be found not guilty, which is just yeah, I hate I hate that. I hate that aspect. But again, I think it's it's doing exactly what Johns and Tynan set out to do, which is, you know, elicit that sort of response. And it's, yeah, part of the reason it bugs me is because it's all too real, you know, in terms of real world, people getting away with stuff. Uh, It's just frustrating. So anyway, anything to add to that, Rock? Well, yeah, just just that the execution never worked very well. Uh, Dragging this out over 14 issues was a huge mistake because it just never worked. And in fact, the evidence that it didn't work is in this very, in this, is in this very issue because essentially the, the entirety or largely the the bulk of the events that basically lead to that result in a not guilty verdict for punchline we were we watched it take place over the previous 13 issues and now this issue it's just restating it a bunch of witnesses on the stand telling us what we've already witnessed this is so boring and it, it it is so frustrating to me. And and I complained earlier in, in previous issues that I thought that Colin and Harper Rowe and Leslie Tompkins were grossly incompetent. Uh, and, and Bluebird in prison, I thought the whole thing was a gong show. So that I thought it, it just never made sense. And I and uh, well, I mean, it was the easiest prediction to make. I I, I hope that Punchline would be found not guilty. Because she should be. She's supposed to be a master. I I thought, I've said this before, that I think the best version of her character ought to involve her being a master of the media, master of media manipulation. And so if she's if she can't master the media manipulation, then what's the point of the character really other than just being another, uh, than a cheap version of uh, Harley Quinn? So I like the outcome here. I like the fact that she was found not guilty. 
it, and I agree with you, it should elicit a, a viscerally negative response, but that's a good way. She is a villain after all. Uh, I just, getting here though was, was, was pretty choppy, but I like the outcome. You know, I, I, I like the outcome and, uh, you know, I, better late than never, I guess. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I, I agree with you, but not, ne- I don't know that I would get there in the same way. Um, yeah. cause you're saying, yeah, in, they're on the stand and they're, uh, they're repeating things we've already seen. I think it would have been better, at least for me. But again, this doesn't get you 14 issues of backup. It would have been better if we skipped most of the stuff, most of the issues, the middle issues that we got while you know we saw them in prison. Yeah. And instead, as these people were giving their testimony on the stand, we got some flashback to show you know a yeah. panel or two of the riot. Yep. Or Good panel, point. You know, yeah. it's like yeah, the whole the, all the issues that were in prison didn't work for me. I, I like the trial stuff. But the yeah maybe and maybe that's just me I, you know I generally like uh, courtroom drama and that kind of thing so I don't know yeah. anyway I'm looking forward to the end of it and I hope ultimately that I mean it sounds like she's gonna be found not guilty hopefully there's some kind of comeuppance uh, again she's a villain she's gonna escape she's gonna be out there I get it but you know sometimes it's good to see them get caught pay pay some consequence even if it's only for a couple of weeks before the next writer comes along and takes her to do whatever. Uh, anyway, moving on, Justice League versus Legion of Superheroes Part 2, The Gold Lantern Saga. This is from writer Brian Michael Bendis. Art is by Scott Godlewski. Colors by Ryan Cody. Letters by Dave Sharp. Seems like this is going to tie in way more with what Williamson is doing than we even initially thought. Uh, how, how did this one work for you, Rock? Uh, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't mind it. I, I actually, uh, I'll just bring it up here. We we got uh, we got the Justice League and the Legion of Superheroes essentially uh, dealing with the Great Darkness. The great uh, a cloud of a portion or an aspect of the Great Darkness has formed a cloud in the 21st century and the 31st century. Uh, last issue ended with Gold Lantern being stranded in the 21st century, while the Justice League is pulled into the 31st century, uh, uh, where the of course the Legion of Superheroes are. This issue starts off. Uh, with well, it, ex- it starts off giving us the origin of the Gold Lantern. What what Bendis does here, and I think he does it to reasonably good effect. I, I actually I didn't mind this issue. He does it to reasonably good effect, where juxtaposed against the uh, the Justice League waking up in the 31st century and be- being greeted by their 31st century uh, counterparts. Essentially, they've uh, we, we, we get introduced to Kala Lur, I believe his name is. He's the Gold Lantern. He's a Gold Lantern, and he's from the planet of... He's originally from the planet called uh, Aploza, and he's actually blind. He's visually blind, and yet he's chosen by the Elders, which are the 31st century version of the Guardians, to essentially wield a Gold Lantern. And uh, they chose him not because he's uh, uh, he didn't he initially didn't want the mantle because he felt that the the old Green Lantern Corps was too militaristic. But the elders, the future guardians in the 31st century, they want a different kind of lantern because times are different in the 31st century. And so they chose they choose him. And as we get that sort of history, we get uh, we get. Wonder Woman uh, and uh, Naomi and Oliver Queen waking up in the future. Oliver Queen is greeted by is greeted by 
a chameleon boy who's disguised as Wonder Woman, and uh, Naomi is uh, greeted by uh, Dawnstar. And there's there's a lot of uh, dialogue here. This is slow going. Not a lot happens in this issue. What what really happens is that you, you get uh, Bendis is using this opportunity, I think, through the pages of this issue of Justice League to sort of maybe acquaint readers who didn't collect the Legion of Superheroes, acquainting them a little bit with the 30, his version of the 31st century. This is New Earth. This is a thousand years in the future. And it's it's a it's a very different Earth. It's an Earth with cleaner air. It's 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 basically a newly constructed Earth. Uh, but it's it's. The air is different uh, and there's allusions to climate change and maybe the environment being better in the future because it is a better world. At one point, Naomi is talking to Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman sort of has smiles because she realizes that it's uh, she's traveled a lot of places, but the, that the future is a gift. And she's she expresses sort of uh, contentment that the future is as bright uh, as it is. Uh, and of course, uh, leave it to Black Adam and Batman being being a little bit more unfriendly in the future. <laughs> they confront Brainiac Five. They're concerned about the this this darkness, this 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 black this dark cloud, this uh, this great darkness. And as it it appears simultaneously, I guess in the in the thirty first century above Legion headquarters in Metropolis, as well as near the Hall of Justice in the twenty first century, where Gold Lantern still is. And as Gold Lantern approaches this sort of dark cloud, he. He's, he manages to be able to communicate through his Legion flight ring with Brainiac, who's in the 31st century. And there's some interaction between Black Adam, who confronts the cloud in the 31st century, and Gold Lantern, who confronts it in the 21st. And and again, in the meantime, we we get we get uh, further information about the about the about the surprise of the about the origins of the Gold Lantern, which I've already discussed, and. That's really how it ends. It's sort of setting things up. It's setting things up for the next issue. So these first two issues are really about setup. Brainiac 5 uh, is fearful that it's the end of all things because this thing seems, this great darkness seems to transcend time and space. And so he's really concerned about it. We still don't know what the condition is of Triplicate Girl who's recovering from being sort of her three aspects being sort of separated from the great darkness in the first issue. But, you know... I had some hiccups with the dialogue. I thought that the, the, the way, the manner in which some of the communications took place, there's there, people who've had issues with Bendis's dialogue probably still will in parts, but I thought they, the dialogue was some of Bendis's more perhaps frustrating habits for some of us readers. I think they were minimized here. And I think this is a, frankly, a continuing improvement for Bendis. And I, I enjoy this issue. What do you think? Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add. To what you said, I thought it worked really well also, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, with – so anybody who didn't read Legion of Superheroes, Bendis gives he's, – he's dropping little hints here, but it doesn't feel like – which he at times can be overly expositional, explaining – You know, it, I thought it worked and it flowed really well, explaining who the Gold Lantern is, uh, You know, just enough hints of, of how different things are in the, the 31st century. So I thought that all really worked. I thought the fact that the – the great darkness being a bridge between time and space between the 21st century and 31st century was, was really interesting. You know, the fact that as black Adams, you know, approaching it, his lightning goes through and almost hits the gold lantern. So that's all uh, really interesting. And yeah, I just get this feeling and it's a feeling I like because it's been one of my complaints about uh, Joshua Williamson building up to a dark crisis and, and feeling like it's so what he's doing is so siloed and not connected to other parts of uh, of the DCU. So this is 
helping that a little bit. Uh, as far as the art goes, I, I like Scott Godlewski's line work more here, uh, even more here. I think he's getting more comfortable with these characters because uh, I liked it more here than I did in the first issue. Uh, my only complaint about the art, I don't really care for the muted palette on the colors. I think this is such a traditional superhero comic and, uh, you know, especially leaning into the idea of being connected to crisis. What's more DC and what's more super heroic than a crisis. So I'd like the colors to be a little brighter to have them pop off the page, be a little more primary. I'm not sure why they're choosing to go with a, this muted palette. Um, it, it, I don't know. It's not, it's just not working for me. So that's just a personal preference, I guess. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the next book. Uh, this one again, really solid. We're up to, Part 10, so there's two parts left. Uh, part 10 of The Tower, Shadows of the Bat, uh, Detective Comics number 1056. Uh, Mariko Tamaki is the writer. Amin K. Nahulipin on art. Jordi Belair on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Um, so this is pretty interesting. <laughs> we get uh, a little bit of Mayor Nakano's wife, and I, I sort of thought that she was always this way, uh, you know, in terms of being like this really timid person who's just gripped with fear and very anxious, you know, maybe um, some social anxiety there, but we get a little bit of hints at the beginning when she's uh, being interviewed by, I can't remember the, the reporter's name, uh, Deb Donovan. Is that? Yeah. Deb Donovan. Deb, yeah. 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 Um, that she, th that this is more uh, of a recent thing with what Nakano has been through with losing his partner, losing his eye, constantly being under threat as the mayor um, so we get a little context there and then, uh, it's all action after that. It's all action at the tower with, uh, Helena, uh, the huntress is, is doing what she can to try to find out where Nightwing is and save him. Stephanie Brown's got kind of the more, uh, I guess, pedestrian staff that are, or, uh, inmates or patients, whatever you want to call them that aren't, you know, the, the crazed killers, and she's trying uh, to keep them safe in a sub-basement. We've got Nightwing, who had been captured by uh, by Scarecrow, and, and Rocky and I both kind of were disappointed that Scarecrow showed up here. Both kind of Scarecrowed out at this point. Um, we also learned that, that Harley Quinn, so the patient that thought she was Harley Quinn, and they were treating her as though she was delusional and thinking she was Harley Quinn, is actually really Harley Quinn undercover, which... <laughs> I kind of sort of thought maybe that was the case anyway, just because yeah. she's every time she was drawn, she looked exactly like Harley Quinn. So I didn't know if that was, you know, an art screw up or that, or if it was actually Harley Quinn. So we find out that uh, in this issue. And I like Mariko Tamaki's um, version of Harley, the voice she gives her. Um, so yeah, it, again, a little bit of a setup issue, just getting everybody in place. A lot of uh, action, as I said, as members of the bat family are are entering the tower and they're taking out uh you know the party crashers and they're taking out what uh, villains they can we see uh huntress take out uh, mr freeze in this one uh and as nightwing gets tossed out the window there's a surprise return of somebody that that hasn't been in gotham uh and I, i'm not exactly sure it was a cool moment but i'm i'm not exactly sure how i feel about batman showing back up only because you know, I have both said that we haven't missed him. The story has been working without him. Yeah. And I don't know. Does that diminish, you know, the rest of what the Bat family has been doing here? Like Batman's got to come in and, and save the day, you know? 
So, yeah. uh, but I'm still, I'm still enjoying it. Um, just like last time. And again, this isn't a, a knock against Amon K because I've been a big fan of his art and other things. Um, kind of similar to my, my thoughts on, uh, on Legion superheroes versus justice league. I wish the colors were brighter here, but the other part of it is like, man, you know how hard it is to, to follow even ice, you know, like his, his work <laughs> is so good. Uh, and then, you know, to come to this, it's, it's not that this is bad. It's just like anybody's art is going to look, you know, less, it's going to look lesser when compared to, to that. So, uh, but I can't fault the storytelling. Uh, he definitely handles the action scenes really good. I, I especially like the way he laid out the panel or the splash page actually where Harley takes a, a mallet to uh, one of the party crashers and he comes like flying out toward the, the reader. I thought that was a really, really well done page. Um, so yeah, not, not, I don't really have any complaints, uh, you know, specifically about the art. Um, yeah, that, that page right there, that's just fantastic. If you're watching us on YouTube. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the backup. Yeah. I got a lot to say about the backup too, but, uh, but what were your thoughts on the main before we move uh, on? Yeah. I, uh, I, well, a couple of, uh, the main it was very interesting. One of the revelations in the main is that it's, it's sort of confirmed some of the open questions that we've, I think readers have had about the huntress and the powers that she get, that she got from Hugh Vile, that virus. We know for, we, we know that, it's been unclear exactly. We know that hunters can sort of see through the eyes of killers and it's, and hunters herself says in this issue that she can, she basically can see, uh, she can see rage and, uh, she can see and sense when, when somebody near her wants to hurt somebody. And, and yet it's fallible. Like at one point uh, the huntress is actually attacked in this issue and she can see the rage of the person of most people that are filled with rage and are about to attack. But for some reason, the one individual that threatened her, she couldn't see the person's rage. That was a potential, uh, uh, a, a potential threat to her. So while it seems that hunters can see potential killers and the rage in other people when they attack other people, the weakness of Huntress's vision is that perhaps she cannot see those who might have rage and express rage toward her. So there's some fallibility there, which she thought was very interesting. And I think that is interesting as a little bit of quirk to that ability, that sort of psychic ability that she seems to have uh, acquired. The other thing is that I didn't know if it was, I didn't Sorry. know if it was because it was toward her or because of maybe what the um, the intentions of the person, you know, she's like, she can see when somebody wants to commit violence, but the guy, he even said, he goes, I don't want to do it. I have to do it. You know what I mean? Like right. maybe it's the motivation. It could be. That's a good I, point. I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think of it the way that you, you yeah. did, but yeah, it could, could, I could see it going that way too. Could, could be either one. Yeah, it could. So, but I, like I said, it's sort of interesting and I, I kind of like that vagueness. I mean, cause it's sort of tropey for us readers always to know we're, we're, we're always so picky. We want to know what the powers are. So we, we, under, you know, we feel that we need to know what the powers are. I kind of like the idea that we're not entirely sure exactly how Huntress's sort of abilities now work this. And so it's kind of, we can learn as she does. So I think that's an interesting little quirk there. Uh, there is a cliffhanger here. Uh, it's unclear. The Anna Vulsion at the end of this issue either shoots Psycho Pirate or Mary Nakano's wife. And that's very interesting. Uh, I thought that w one thing Marika Tamaki did very effectively here is that uh, there was some sympathy that I had for Psycho Pirate. Psycho Pirate, uh, unlike Dr. 
Tobias Ware, who was using Psycho Pirate to manipulate and control the patients, it would appear that Psycho Pirate's intention, really, he really didn't have a noble motive. He really did want to help them. It, and I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm assuming Psycho Pirate isn't lying. I think Roger Hayden had that sincere desire to actually help them. Now, at least that's what he tells Marin, he tells Marin Nakano, and he doesn't try to harm her. So I think that he's actually being remorseful and, and is being truthful when he tells her that. Maybe he isn't, but I suspect he is. But it's all thrown for a loop at the end where Anna Volshin comes in and uh, Anna Volshin, along with the other inmates, knows that somebody else was, was was controlling them. So did Anna Volshin in revenge kill Psycho Pirate or did she kill Mernicano and or do they want to use Psycho Pirate for their own uses to complete their takeover of Arkham Tower? So we'll have to wait for, I guess, part 11 to find out. But I, I quite enjoyed this uh, I, this issue. I think Tamaki's done a good job building the suspense, and we actually had Tim Drake show up as well, and uh, with a spoiler. And the, you know, there was actions on all front in this issue, and I thought it was very well laid out. Yeah, not a surprise. I mean, uh, Psycho Pirate's been—he's never been portrayed as like this outright evil guy. Like he, he's, in a way, he's somebody that's always being manipulated by somebody else. Because even. You know, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, he's he's manipulated. He's he's not a he doesn't have strong character, and I don't mean that like people haven't established his character. His character and his personality are well established. I mean, he's just a he, it's established as him being a weak person. You know, he doesn't have a yeah. strong personality. He doesn't stand up for himself, so he's easily able to be manipulated. And if I had to guess who Anna Volshin shot, she didn't shoot either one of them. It was a warning shot that went right between the two. That's my prediction. Yeah. But yeah, if if if, if Mayor Nakano's wife did get killed, uh yeah, I mean, how much can one guy I, I could see them I could see him just, you know, riding off into the sunset and being like, That's it, I'm I'm done with Gotham. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um But as far as the backup goes, this House of House of Gotham, I've never felt like the title was more appropriate than for this issue. Uh, written by Matthew Rosenberg, Fernando Blanco is the artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters. What Matthew Rosenberg and Fernando Blanco have done here in tying in this, again, this kid whose name we still don't know, this redhead, <laughs> this redhead kid, um, tying it in with Gotham and kind of the people that are left behind, the people that have suffered trauma. He's, he's almost, con you know, he confronts Batman in this issue and it's almost like he doesn't come right out and say, this is your fault. But he lays it all at Batman's feet. Like, what do you expect us to do? You know, you're, you're here to stop me. You say I'm leading this criminal gang. I'm just trying to help people. I'm just trying to help the people that even you seem to have forgotten, you know, and, and the way that Rosenberg has managed to uh, weave this kid's story into the big events of, of Gotham from Nightfall uh, to Night Quest to uh, – to no man's land here, I think is, is really fantastic. And it leans into that idea of, of, you know, a house of Gotham, like Gotham is this, um, you know, living organism of, of society where, yeah, things are not, things are not right. You know what I mean? Like that whole idea of, Hey, before you go pointing your finger at uh, somebody else, make sure your own house is in order in a way. That's what this kid is doing to, to Batman. Uh, and so I really, really am impressed with what Rosenberg and Blanco are doing here. And I would not be surprised. My prediction is that uh, as as fun and as action packed as the Shadows of the Bat storyline has been with Arkham Tower, I have a feeling that this House of Gotham story 
may end up having more long-term consequences and impact than yeah. that main story. I can yeah. see that being the case. Yeah. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. And the Fernando Blanco art has been fantastic as it has been throughout. And this is a case where this darker, more muddy, muted color palette that Jordi Belair has been giving us really works for the tone of the story that, uh, that Rosenberg has been telling throughout. So I'm a big fan. Uh, masterfully done by Rosenberg over these 10 issues in this backup. Uh, this is a kid, we've been on the journey from this kid from he w- when he was a young infant losing his parents, being traumatized by ultimately the Joker, but also Batman in that same evening that his parents were killed. Uh, he, he, he threw it all. He's had experience with uh, his first psychiatrist. His first therapy was with Dr. Harleen Quinzel. He's become familiar over the, the years of his uh, young adult life from when he was a child to a young adult. He's become familiar with the Huntress, Poison Ivy, Killer Croc, uh, multiple members of the Rogues Gallery, Bane, uh, Azaz. Uh, he's been in Arkham Asylum. He was, you know, practically, Arkham Asylum was practically his de facto foster home. This kid has seen it all. And yet, remarkably, this this kid, this young adult, has managed to keep his own moral compass because Batman at the end leaves him alone. He, he stands up. It, this is in the middle of no man's land and he's formed his own little gang, but of survivors and they're all, and they're just looking for food. And the huntress in this issue basically sets this, you know, sets up this redheaded kid that we wonder who, you know, he's a redheaded adult now with a beard, sets him up for Batman to take him down. But Batman realizes that this kid is a survivor and Batman recognizes the kid and this kid stands up for himself. And Batman respects that. And let's be blunt here. This kid hasn't actually done anything wrong. He hasn't actually, I don't know, has he killed anybody in the first 10 issues? Maybe I forget, but he's had a rough life. No, he's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's never, not. yeah. So I'm, it's going to be really, really curious. Is this kid going to be a Gotham hero? Is he going to be an anti-hero? Is he going to be a bad guy? I don't know, but Rosenberg, Rosenberg, sorry, he's got me really interested into what? Who is this kid? And, uh, you know, not, not only is this story fantastic, but speculator alert, guys. I mean, I mean none of these speculators are buying DC comics now, but I tell you what, this this is Rosenberg has done a hell of a job here. As you said, utilizing established evergreen Batman history uh, from all Batman major events. And this kid was there for it all. And so, man, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I mean, this is the way you build suspense as to who, the, who, who, you know, who is this kid? Who is this kid? I mean, we're all wondering, like, who is this kid? I mean, uh, and and frankly, I'm almost no one's talking about these, this backup. But it's it, to me, this is by far the most interesting, and the art is it's just fantastic. I mean, uh, uh, Blanco's uh, Fernando Blanco's on the art, just fantastic. I love the the the, the illustration of Huntress and, and and Batman here, but very well done, very impressive. Yep, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, it'll be interesting if the first issue of um, Shadows of the Bat ends up being worth a lot because it's the first appearance of this kid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll go hunting it, hunting it down for a completely different reason. That's exactly right. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Gotham, or Future State Gotham, issue number 11, uh, written solo this time. No no, Joshua Williamson. Dennis Culver's going solo on it. Art is by somebody named G- Jeffo, G-E-O-F-F-O, uh, lettered by Troy Petrie. Uh, it does have a backup that is by uh, written and drawn by uh, Raphael Albuquerque. And it's a it's it is a reprint again, but at least this time they reprinted uh, a, a story from way back in 2013. Uh, I think it was in 
Batman black and white number two or number three uh, from way back then. So I do appreciate that. I like that. Hey, if you're going to reprint one, at least they're reprinting one that's almost 10 years old. Um, but what were your thoughts on the main story, Rock? Uh, unfortunately, I, I hate to say this. I'm going to have to plead the fifth. I, I just skim it. I, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't comment much about it. I. I just. I'm sorry. I've, of all the comics I've read this week, this one got yeah. got short thrift for me. And uh, my apologies to uh, Dennis Culver uh, because honestly, every time I've read this, he's been, he's uh, he's gotten better and better on this. And for a title that I started off very much criticizing as to why it it, it exists, I, I I do think that this is. I, I do like punchline in here and, I, and the cast of characters works very well up until this point and i the action here looks pretty good uh but unfortunately i, I didn't read it to fully give it a, the proper review it deserves so you'll have to help me out all right well it's it is pretty interesting that for the first time we get some color on one of the pages and it made me <laughs> think have they been going black and white this entire time just to have this one page stand out in color i don't think that that's actually the case uh, but I did appreciate that we got color uh, finally. Uh, I will also say that um, I like Jeffo's art. It's just it's more of a it's less of a, a, a manga style and more of a finished style. Uh, it, it feels less unpolished. Um, and so I, I enjoyed the art a much more. Um, and I, I enjoyed the story more as well. I mean, we still have Harley Quinn and the Jace Fox version of Batman and Red Hood as, uh, as what do they call him? A, um, Agent Red or whatever he is working Peacekeeper for the Magistrate. Peacekeeper Red? Or- Pe- Peacekeeper Red. There Peacekeeper you go. Red, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're still trying to take out uh, the Joker bots that are at this, you know, this new version of the Joker. Uh, and they're trying to get Tobias Whale, who apparently knows something about the, you know, the boss that's causing all these problems. Probably the one that, that, caused the big explosion in the shape of a bat we know it's either the old hush or some new version of hush but they don't they're trying to find out they're trying to get tobias whale to safety while uh this new joker who is kind of seems to be in the employee of this either old hush or new hush is trying to take him out so that's sort of the bulk of the story but then <clears throat> there's the the side plot that's going on that we saw a little bit of last issue where taliel ghoul uh, is going to be supplying Nightwing with with um, with brain. I think they call it right, B R A N E, yeah. which is the the basically the um, psychological equivalent of venom, right? Like the venom serum that Bane takes that augments his body. Brain is supposed to augment your mind. So we see Nightwing get hooked up with like this uh, gauntlet on his arm that then has a hose that goes to the back of his neck and he can uh, click it up to uh, three times, I think every 20 minutes more than that is not recommended. Uh, But it's supposed to, you know, basically boost his brain and Talia wants Nightwing to do this because they don't know where Damien is. She, so her part of it is, Hey, I'm going to help Nightwing out so that she can, uh, or Nightwing can go rescue my son. So that's where the, the color goes in when Nightwing finally, uh, takes this brain and gets all this uh, information kind of overload and we see some color, but then unfortunately he passes out uh, maybe a little too much too fast. And Talia has to call for her, uh, her friend saying uh, medics uh, keep this man alive if you value your own life. So she's obviously uh, worried about what that entails 
if uh, if he dies. So, and and I also will say, uh, we, we both commented on the fact that they specifically called out Talia as a beautiful woman in the previous issue, and the art just did not. It did not reflect that. Yeah. So I, I do appreciate that Jaffa, like at least she looks feminine here. You know, at least yeah. she's drawn like a woman. Finally. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then the other fun aspect of it that I really enjoyed was uh, Peacekeeper Red and uh, Jace Fox go to uh, one of the satellite bat caves that Batman has hidden throughout the city that uh, apparently Jason Todd has been discovering and getting back online, kind of cleaning them up and getting them power and whatnot. And they both get some, some armor to go take out, to try to take out the Joker. So I appreciated that as well, because, and this is really kind of leaning into the kind of Asian influences, East Asian uh, manga influences here. We see as uh, Red Hood is, you know, launches off his bike, jumps off some uh, stairs or what have you on his bike, and he's in the air approaching uh, the next Joker. And then the bike transforms under him and around him and becomes the armor that he's wearing when he goes to beat on the Joker. It looks pretty so I, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's again, it, I, I was like, well, that's about as, you know, anime as you can get, you know, thinking about anime cartoons I watched when I was a kid. So I thought that was a pretty cool idea as well. So yeah, a lot of action. Um, I'm trying to put aside my my main complaint I have about this series and just try to enjoy it for what it is because there's a lot of action and some fun ideas here. Um, but you know, now that again we know the magistrate doesn't come to pass, they don't gain power in Gotham. So what the, what is the point of the story? I'm just trying to to enjoy it for for what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I mean that one page with the the colored art looks pretty good. So. I, you know, again, DC, can you just color the whole book? I, I would think I would enjoy it more. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm all about black and white art when, you know, there's like great line work and uh, and inking and whatnot, textures to, to look at and see what people have done. But I don't know. Th this is not that. This art is, is not that type of art, I think, that really shines best in black and white. So It, it actually is interesting, uh, you know, that, that that color page looks fantastic. And it's just yeah. when he's experimenting with that drug and the idea that he sees colors better because of the drug. It, it works. It fits the narrative extremely well, that, that particular page. Yeah. And again, a lot of impact because it's been the only color page throughout the story. So I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they know what they're doing. Uh, the backup is i mean we don't have enough scarecrow content it, you know it's scarecrow making batman think he's think he's dead and he's traveling through some limbo trying to decide if he's going to go to heaven or hell Mr. Raphael albuquerque this is art that looks fantastic in black and white if you've never read the story it's it's worth your time so check it out uh okay let's move on uh up next we have batgirls number four Written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, Jorge Corona on art, Sarah Stern on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Uh, yeah, so like I mentioned, I wasn't planning on reading this whole thing. I was just going to skim it, but I got <laughs> I got sucked in. Um, it feels like a little bit of forward momentum because I feel like at times the story has really dragged on. But we got a lot of different aspects. We got to see some of the neighbors. We got to see um, – both Cass and uh, and Stephanie Brown in in action. We know that these uh, these remnants, I guess I'll call them, of the magistrate, the saints, are still tracking them. Uh, we get a little bit of what we, at least what I thought, 
or suspected all along uh, proof that this this guy from Barbara's past is, you know, not who they or not who he, he pretends to be. Um, and in fact, he's uh, what, what does Stephanie call him? Uh, Charles, it Charles. doesn't matter. If he's a, a total babe and my ex because he's also a genius psychotherapist, Dante. If that's not yes. a, a mouthful. Yeah. So, yeah, Charles Dante dated Barbara back in college. And I don't know. It just like from the moment he showed up, it, there was just something about him where he went, well, there's the bag. There's the bad guy. And sure enough, that's what we find out. He's this guy named Spellbinder. And um, he's been behind everything that's been going on all along, basically. So, you know, wh- how that's all going to play out, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um but I, yeah, I, I just felt like we've, we got some forward momentum here. I th- we're getting some answers to some of the questions we've had. We're not treading water anymore. So I, I, I did appreciate that. Um, I still don't care for the art, though. Uh, it just, you know, every page having that dark ink splatter over it, it's just, it's, I don't know, maybe it's my type A personality. I like things nice and neat, <laughs> and it, it just makes it look messy. I just, it's just not my favorite. So, and and it's, it's unfortunate because uh, I I mean, I've read other things that Jorge Corona has done specifically middle West that he did with Scotty Young that I absolutely loved. um, Cause I think that his art aesthetic suits that story a little more Um, to me. This is more of a traditional superhero story, the way it's been played out, maybe with a little bit of uh, horror themes to it or horror undertones. Um, But I like my superhero art to be, you know, a little cleaner than this. So Again, it's just a personal preference. It's no, it's no knock against the storytelling because Jorge is a fantastic sequential storyteller. Um, but yeah, this, if yeah, I like this issue. It's probably the, the best issue of the series so far for me. So, what do you think, Rock? Well, first, I want to give a shout out to Clunrad. Uh, I think that's got to be the coolest name for a for a creative team collaboration. Becky Clunin and Michael W. Conrad Clunrad. I, I I don't think I've ever come out and write it said it but it's a it's a very cool name um i actually i I gotta give him credit here and in because i've been i was i was very upfront when this series began that this is not my cassandra kane uh and i'm i so i have a bias against the original iteration of cassandra kane but you you know i gotta get over it and the fact of the matter is is that the jose corona art here is really fantastic. He's really good on the details. If you, if the the details in the art, I think the coloring, I think they really. It, I'm I'm getting used to the art, and it. I think it works. He's 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 not afraid to experiment, and this uh, he is a. This is a good the, the story that that Clunrad uh, that they're telling. It works. So many characters are in this issue and it all seems to be put together fairly well. I really like, love the banter between the dialogue between Stephanie, uh, between Stephanie and Cassandra. I, th- it's pretty good. It's getting better. There's, there's humor here. There's a couple moments where Raven laughed when they're talking the, about the difference between bluffing and the, di- and lying. <laughs> uh, I love that they call their car Bondo, their, their car, because, uh, last issue we had, uh, Barb Babs give them like their, their, like almost like unicycles to, to drive around in. And of course they abandon that and they have this 
dilapidated, almost kind of car with a cool engine. They call it Bondo. Uh, we have a villain here, Tudor. We still have Seer, who is like the evil oracle that, that's around. We have Charles Dante, the art therapist that Babs is checking out, but he's really spellbinder. We also have a villain going around, the Hill Ripper. And me, uh, meanwhile, we still have the saints of Valentine and Tarsus and this other group that, that are following the Batgirls around. And you know, there, there's there's a lot of moving parts here. Meanwhile, there's still like the the rear window sort of Alfred Hitchcockian sort of idea that the Batgirls, Stefan and and Cassandra are following him around this Mister Green. They because they they find him suspicious. He's they're following him around in different libraries, and they're sus- they he, even though he's not really done anything wrong, they suspect he's done something wrong. And we're as readers, we're really getting to uh, be familiar with the neighborhood here. Clunard have uh, have done uh, Becky Clunard and Michael W. W. Conner have done a good job here of getting us familiar with the Batgirls neighborhood and and their and just just their rapport, their friendship, and just the neighborhood that they reside in. And this is only in it, it only took them four issues to do this so far. And they're pulling me into this world. And I'm not the type of reader I think that they want to attract. And yet I find myself oddly compelled and interested in the world that they're setting up. So I want to give them props for that. And I'm actually really curious to see why the Saints are after the Batgirls. I'm not clear about that. This Charles Dante, the Spellbinder, what's his true motivation? What's going on? I'm I'm curious here, and so I gotta, you know, I, I'm in this. Uh, I'm really curious to see where this goes and if this is going to be resolved uh, in the next couple issues. But uh, pleasantly surprised. Yeah, so interesting too, because we really thought this was going to be more aimed at younger readers. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think it's a little. More sophisticated than that. So, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Def- definitely working. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Urban Legends. Four stories, the end of two of them. Uh, so first we have Batman and Zatanna in Blood and Bound to Our Will, rather. Part three of six from writer Vita Ayala. Nicola Semeggia on art. Nick Filardi on color. Steve Wands on letters. And then the final part of White Witch, Stigma, part three of three. Rom V is the writer. Anand R.K. is the artist, John Pearson on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, Eternity, that's Kid Eternity and Eternity in Gotham, part three of three from Mohail Moshigo. Uh, Arist Dine, D-E-Y-N, hope I'm saying that right, does the art in colors and Seda Timofanti on letters. And then Ace the Bat Hound and Hounded, part three of six from writer Mark Russell, Carl Mostert on art, Trish Mulvihill on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, so yeah, you're up first, Rocky. You talk about any or all. What'd you think? Uh, well, I I enjoyed the uh, Batman Urban Legend, well, the, the first one, Batman and Zatanna, Bound to Our Will, Part Three, uh, written by Vita Ayala, Nicola Kizmazija on the art. Uh, I I was actually uh, I I'm enjoying this one. The, the 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 continuing sort of saga of the the sort of focusing on the relationship between Batman and Zatanna, how in the past they've, in the past, when they, uh, uh, Zatanna, in the past, Batman, Bruce and Zatanna maybe had a little bit of a fling. They had some feelings for each other. And at one point, Zatanna cast a spell and unbeknownst to her, uh, this created sort of a magical imbalance. And this, this Celeste, this, uh, Celeste character, this, this sort of, a witch-like character called Celeste is sort of pulls in her son named Eos, who's over like who's been trapped for three hundred years, and and he, he's you know this. So Celeste and Eos are these magical, evil entities sort of brought into our world, 
And there's an imbalance there created by by a spell that Zatanna did while while her you know in her younger years when she you know her and uh, Bruce Wayne may have had a little bit of a thing going on, and uh, the they use Virella pulls in John Constantine here, and naturally they need John Constantine's help because this Celeste character and Eos they're you know they're they're up to no good. This they're they're bring arguably bringing in sort of a an apocalyptic event of some kind or at least. Uh, they're, they're magical bad guys. That's all you really need to know. Because frankly, the the most compelling part of this story that I really like is the it's just a great character work that Vita Ayala does uh, with John Constantine, who's flirting with Batman. Of course, he's uh, you know for John Constantine, either sex can make him happy. <laughs> I mean, and of course he, he he flirts with Batman just to get under Batman's goat. And of course, he, him and uh, Zatanna is is his ongoing slash former slash lover at different points in time i thought that i thought the dialogue here was excellent full props to vita ayala and uh i thought maybe batman was maybe some of batman's dialogue was a little off in parts but for the most part i was uh i really i uh, was impressed uh uh sismage art was fantastic some of the, the magical work that uh, john constantine does creating a magical bubble around their work as they're as they're trying to work through uh what's what exactly has happened I think it works very, very well. Uh, we, we get to learn more about the... Um, we, le- we meet this new character called Jackie Day. And we, we actually get to see this brand new character, uh, His this this new character, Jackie Day. We, we see this young kid from age four up to age 28. And he's a kind soul, but he's being possessed by this Eos. And uh, we learn quite a bit about this Jackie Day, about his moral compass. And uh, he's actually a good kid, but he's, he's slowly being possessed by this... Eos character, and I think we're told that for a reason. Uh, there's something called magical homeostasis, which is uh, uh, something is, that has been disrupted, and that John Constantine says that this imbalance in magic has to be balanced. And it, and the way to fix it is that Batman and Zatanna, it's something to do about their relationship and in the past that they need to work out and maybe fix that imbalance. We're only in part three of, of a six parts uh, story here, and. I'm 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 really intrigued. I love the character work, and frankly, I don't even care who the bad guys are. I just love how I love the jo- Constantine, Batman, and Zatanna and their interactions here. We're actually getting to learn something for once. I'm actually curious because I don't really know a lot about Batman and Zatanna. I know it's always been teased, and I kind of like the fact that we got a little bit of a quasi. I know it's not a love triangle, but the tension between the three here is kind of interesting. Not obviously between Constantine and Batman, but the teasing that goes on and the fact that Batman doesn't necessarily like Constantine. Batman says to him, you know, I've lost count on one hand how many times you've you've gotten us into trouble, you know, and almost ended the world because of your smart ass uh, ways. He says that to Constantine. Again, just really great. Vita Ayala knows these characters and it shows and I, I quite enjoyed I quite enjoyed this story. What about your, uh, what about, what about yourself? Yeah, I I echo a lot of what you said. I I mean, getting this, the background for, uh, for this Jackie character is, is interesting because, because what, you know, what's the point? Uh, The fact that he's taken over by Eos, he's completely subsumed. So I got to think that maybe something about the fact that he, in the end, will come back around to, I don't know, self exercise, uh, yeah, uh, Eos or something. So yeah, not really sure, but yeah, the, the action's ramping up. The the triangle between the three heroes very interesting. I mean, just the dynamic that Vita gives us between Batman and Zatanna 
throughout has been really interesting. Um, I know traditionally it's all about Batman and Selena, and certainly that relationship between Batman and Catwoman has been almost shoved down our throats by uh, DC in, in recent years with the Tom King series. And um, But I, I never have really thought that that was a – I've never been a fan of, of Batman being together with, with Selena. Uh, I know she's much more of an anti-hero now, and that's fine or whatever. But I, I, I think the idea of Bruce and Zatanna together is much more interesting to me, um, be, just because they are so different. I mean, in a lot of ways, Batman and Catwoman are—they're they, so similar, right? They're street-level characters. They don't have superpowers. They, you know, operate at night, kind of seedy underbelly of Gotham City and that kind of thing. You know, there, there's a lot in common there. Zatanna and Batman couldn't be further apart, right? She's all about magic. He's grounded in reality. Like there, there's a lot of interesting story ideas there. So I, I would be much more interested in that even more so than seeing Zatanna with John Constantine, because Zatanna and John Constantine, it's kind of the same thing as Bruce and Selena, right? They're, they're, they're so similar. They're both magic users and that kind of thing. Although she's a sweetheart and he's a total prick, but uh, you get what I'm saying that, you know, kind of like different worlds if you go with, Bruce and uh, Zatanna. So, yeah. but yeah, I'm curious. This, this story has been building to something uh, and, and it feels like we've gotten a lot of story. And I think you you know made that point. We've got a lot of story. We're only halfway there. We've got three issues to go. So I guess we'll, we'll see. Uh, I'll just talk real quick about the, the next one, the white witch stigma number three. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm still not a big fan of the Anand RK art. Uh, it's, it's very impressionistic. It's very watercolor. It's okay. Um, I, I do feel like, Ram V did exactly what he set out to do in terms of giving us a little bit of origin story and context for White Witch. Um, but I think just selfishly, I'm sad that he left Catwoman because I I think we would have gotten a lot more of White Witch and, and even greater understanding of who she is as a character because I think she's very interesting and has a lot of potential. Um, but, yeah. you know, unfortunately, he's, you know, you can only write so many books a month and that was the one they had to give for him. So, uh, but I did. I did ultimately enjoy the story. Uh, I was a little iffy on it after the second part, but yeah, I think it works, um, and it just makes me want to know more about her. So I, I think in that way, it was successful. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, it's revealed here, which, which was kind of revealed already. But uh, uh, Re—that's uh, the name of uh, the girl that would be the woman who would become White Witch. She's uh, the result of a uh, uh, something called a. Th- Thysanus cloning program or Thysanus, Thysanus cloning program. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Uh, and uh, she, and and she keeps uh, she keeps being cloned, but every she's always flawed, and she's every time she's cloned, she remembers more of her original memories. And uh, Simon Singh continues to clear her, uh, kill her every time there's an imperfect clone, or what Simon Saint deems to be an imperfect clone, he kills the clone. But every time she's cloned. She remembers more and more of her memories. And, uh, ultimately this is the third and final chapter. And basically it just tells us it's, it's her love for Ghostmaker. Her and Ghostmaker had, uh, had a passionate love affair at some point. And it's her love for Ghostmaker. And that 
that connective, that emotional connection that sort of helps her salvage her memories. And, and we saw that in, in at the tail end of Fear State where White Witch was actually battling Ghostmaker and then, you know, recon, you know, Latro, the Ghostmaker recognizes Re and sort of like she freezes. And, and so this sort of, now we know why it's because she's part of the Simon Saints program. And I'm not sure she says at the end, she makes a promise to Simon Saint at the end here that she will kill Simon Saint one day. And we know Simon Saint was killed. Did, did White Witch kill Simon Saint? Who killed Simon Saint? Do you remember? I can't remember. It wasn't White, it wasn't White Witch, but. Yeah, I don't think it was. I'm not convinced that, I'm not convinced. Didn't we see something that gave a hint that, that Simon Saint might still be alive? Possibly, he's yeah. Like, they took, yeah, they took him to prison, and then supposedly he was killed in prison. But then we saw something else later that may have been that was their way to get him out of prison. I don't know. I can't remember, to be honest with you, but yeah. I don't think he's dead. Yeah, well, it seems interesting that Re here promising, you know, one day I will have enough memory back and I will kill you. And Simon saying, you know, he looks has a look of almost terror on his face in the final panel. But And I know, well, I... Again, I, I, I can't remember. I, I guess we review too many damn comics. We can't remember who died and who lives in the DC universe anymore. But <laughs> but I'm, like you said, I'm, even if he is dead, I'm sure Simon Saint will come back and, and re uh, this the White Witch will have her chance for revenge inevitably. But uh, you want to uh, uh, join me to talk about the final? Yeah, yeah, dive, yeah. Go ahead and dive into Eternity. Uh, yeah, uh, the story was Kid Eternity. This is the final chapter of uh, Kid Eternity. The uh, writer Mahal Moshigo, with art by Arist Dane. And I, um, I thought I thought this was an interesting ending. I, I I learned something more about Kid Eternity that I didn't know. This is an individual who uh, he can. Uh, I we know that essentially as he he can. Uh, he can see through and communicate with dead people once they've been murdered, and he helps solve their their case their cases. Uh, but apparently, I didn't know the, the ghosts that he sees of the dead. They disappear after twenty four hours, so he's only got twenty four hours to solve their murders. So he's got to act quick. <laughs> In this particular case, uh, last issue it ended with with us believing that this that this one character Regina, named Regina, was responsible for uh, the 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 uh, the killing of the. Uh, w- w- was responsible for killing the victim named Kate. But as it turns out, uh, a very interesting twist here. Well done by Mo- Mo- Mahali Mashigo. Uh, a twist I never saw coming, and that is, it reminded me of uh, uh, of the uh, that Bruce Willis movie, you know, I See Dead People. Um, the, the, the prime suspect, Regina, who I thought Regina was the killer, ends up being another ghost. So both Regina and Kate are ghosts. And... Uh, Actually, there's a little misdirection at the end, and Kid Eternity utilizes uh, some of his own, you know, forensics, and with the help of some cat hairs, uh, they eventually identify the the actual killer. And I thought it was very well done. I thought, it, and you know, this is, I think this is only three chapters. I think three chapters long. I was actually quite impressed with this. And again, I I, I like the art. We got some more history. We learned more about Kid Eternity's origins, about the death of his father. And, um, you know, how, and his experiences in the afterlife when, when his dad died in, in the origins of how, you know, it's still somewhat of a mystery to him why he was chosen to have the, the abilities that he does. But I thought it was very well done. And in three short issues, I, I was I was quite impressed. I 
I enjoyed this and I wasn't, even though I thought the whole kid eternity concept has maybe been, we've seen it done before. I'm actually interested in this kid. I'd, and I'd, I would like to see, you know, I think we have too many bat characters. I think this kid is different enough. I would like to see him interact more with the bat family and have maybe fewer Robins and throw in kid eternity. If I'm honest, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that, I mean, I said as much when, when we read part one, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't mind him as a as a um, supporting character in Batman. You know, like he he's he's the uh, the medical examiner or whatever. So if Batman's investigating a, a murder and he's got to go to the morgue and check out the body, it'd be great to see Kid Eternity show up, team up with Batman, work with somebody like a, a Bluebird or Stephanie Brown from time to time. So yeah, I I really enjoyed it. What's interesting about the the story is we get all the clues and we get all the answers, but and we're told that okay, well maybe the the person that really perpetrated the crime is eventually going to pay, but then it just ends and, and it doesn't, it kind of leaves it. There's, there's a little bit of uh, the story that's left to be determined um, by uh, Mashigo, which I thought was, was interesting because we're, we're basically told that this, this guy who was the superintendent of the building, when he killed this woman, he was possessed by his wife. So he's not really responsible um, and you almost think, okay, so is Kid Eternity going to go and like get him out of jail and, you know, some finds some, but no, it's just, okay, it's over. He's not really responsible. Maybe he's a bad guy anyway. Maybe yeah. he deserved it, you know, maybe, maybe more to come somewhere else in another story. I don't know, but I just thought that was interesting because I almost felt like, well, oh, the story's because you think, okay, well, once you find out who's responsible, the story's going to wind down and then you find out that the other girl Regina's dead as well. And then it's like, okay, well, is the story over? Is it not? And then no, it turns out it's not over, but then we're going to end it anyway. So yeah, I just, I don't know. The ending was a little abrupt. I still enjoyed it very, very much. Um, but I mean, even the fact that this guy in the uh, dark suit, you know, black tie, white button down shirt shows up to take Regina away uh, and then gives uh, kid eternity warning stay away from the dead. They're mine. You've been warned. I'm like, uh, man. Yeah. I, I've never read any kid eternity stuff before this, but this definitely makes me want to read some more kid eternity stuff. So uh, the last story, I don't have a whole lot to say about it because it felt like a lot of setup. Um, these animals are, they're interesting, but we didn't get any of their story in this issue. Um, I mean, they move from one place to another but we didn't, you know, like last issue really focused on them. This one is kind of narrated by this um, this Russian mobster uh, who who is the one that has Bruce Wayne right now, has Batman trapped and is going to apparently auction him off. Um, and there's some context in the story he tells, which I thought was interesting. He tells this story um, about a puppy that was given to a lion for the lion to eat. And the lion ends up making friends with the puppy. And then eventually the puppy dies and the lion's sad. And he's telling the story to one of his underlings who's American. And she's like, what's the point of that story? And the guy's like, I don't know. You, you Americans, your stories always have to have a point. Like, yeah, you're right, dude. Stories are supposed to have a point. That's what a story is. So, yeah, I, I, I did appreciate that from Mark Russell because I know different cultures, you know, 100%. Like, sometimes it's okay to tell a story. It just reminds you how pointless life is because I'm, you're telling a pointless story. <laughs> like, come on, man. So, I, I did appreciate that. It's a good story. I'm interested to see how it uh, how it winds up. There's still three issues left of this, and I have a feeling based on the way this one ends, 
that we're going to get a lot of action next time because we didn't get a whole lot of action in this one. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is I still love the idea of a dog named Lix Luthor. That's just a fantastic name. <laughs> so well, what do you think about this one? Well, I, I enjoyed this. I, I think the idea of Ace the Bat Hound is, is, is awesome. Uh, Lex Luthor is actually the villain dog. So we, we it's actually established here. Lex Luthor, the dog, is actually helping Mr. Swan uh, apprehend because all those pets. Because Ace and the Hound, the Bat Hound, all the pets, they escaped the, the pet cemetery that's run by Mr. Swan. And he wants to get them back because Mr. Swan has revealed that the, the pet cemetery is actually being used. He actually uses it to bury the, the bury the uh, like used by the mafia to bury to bury their dead, and uh, the result of that is that he does he's afraid that if the if the dogs they got to find the pets that escape to kill him because if they come back with the authorities. Uh, he's afraid that they might discover and dig up and and discover that they actually there's actually buried people there that have been murdered, and so that's interesting. And meanwhile, of course, uh, this uh, Colonel Andre Tarkov is this Russian who's who this is this Russian guy who's managed to acquire and he's going to auction off Batman. And there's there's great there's a great scene here where these where he tries to take off Batman's mask and kudos to Mark Russell because we we've seen elements of this before where guys have tried to take off Batman's mask but you know Batman has like a, almost like he has like built in electrical shock if you try to take his mask off you can get electrocuted it's almost like a built in heat vision if you try to take the mask off as well. And, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's also great dialogue and you alluded to it before where this, uh, this Tarkov character, you know, is telling this story about the lion and a puppy and about the lion never killed a puppy because the puppy wasn't afraid of him because the puppy thought the lion wanted to play and the lion grew to love the puppy. The puppy died and then the lion died in almost in a state of depression. What's the point of the story? Well, Mark Russell, uh, the character Tarkov says, well, why does every story have to have a point, you stupid Americans, right? But there is kind of a point, and that is that life rarely gives out puppies. And that's actually stated. So if you're a lion, be a lion. Life rarely gives out puppies. Life isn't fair. Get over it. And I guess that's that's the that's the lesson. If you, if you have to get something out of that story, I guess that's the only thing you can take. But in the meantime, this is building to a head here because uh, obviously, Ace, uh, the 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 Bat Hound, is moving toward. Uh, he's getting closer and closer to where Batman is. Batman himself uh, is eventually going to escape. This is coming to a head here, and I I have no idea how this is going to end. But uh, I've I've been enjoying the ride so far. Yeah, same. It's been uh, it's been fun. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have. Uh, the second part of World's Finest Sons, which is in Nightwing, or no, sorry, the uh, first part was in Nightwing. Second part here is in Superman, Son of Kal-El, number nine, from writer Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo does the pencils. Bruno Redondo and Wade Von Grobiger on inks. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. You'll forgive me for calling it Nightwing. Uh, this is <laughs> Superman, but all along, even now, as I was reading it, I was thinking, yeah, this is an issue of Nightwing, right? Because it's got Tom Taylor writing in Bruno Redondo pencils. That's an issue of Nightwing. Um, but yeah, what, what were your thoughts here? Uh, this was very good. I, I, I really like the Redondo art. Bruno Redondo's art is just fantastic. Uh, Tom Taylor does a good job of, uh, you know, uh, you know, again, another entertaining story. Uh, there, there isn't necessarily a lot of movement on the story. This is kind of a slower paced, uh, story narrative that continues. Uh, well, 
obviously I'm like you, I'm, I'm almost kind of confusing my Nightwing comic with my son of Superman, son of Kal-El comic, but basically Henry Bendix is utilizing the, the rising, his group of metahumans to essentially try to set up John Kent, to set up Superboy to take the fall for a murder. And that's what this whole issue tries to orchestrate. And that's what this is. This is a massive PR campaign to make superheroes look bad. And it's clear that Henry Bendix, by the end of this, wants to orchestrate events to make John Kent look like John Kent is guilty of a murder that Henry Bendix himself orchestrates by essentially executing uh, one of his own men while they're in front of of super of Superman. And, but before we get there, there's this, you know, the, the Nightwing is on an investigation. He's investigating the, the rising and, and eventually a uh, Nightwing, Dick Grayson, you know, he, he attracts the attention of, of, uh, of all of the metahumans that were responsible for killing risk, a former Titan uh, last issue. And there's just a, there's just a great scene where, where Nightwing just, you know, very confidently goes to the roof and and sets up these three metahumans that have been created by Henry Bendix in his uh, program and and it's it's so funny they throw Nightwing off the roof Nightwing isn't even afraid of course and and it's a perfect setup there's a just a fantastic transition it shows the one scene with uh, with uh, with them throwing Nightwing off the roof and then all of a sudden uh, the next the next page you see you know, Superman flying to the roof while, while Dick Grayson, you know, Nightwing, you know, relaxes as he's falling toward the ground, not at all worried. And Superboy, of course, or I'm sorry, Superman uh, gets down to business and, and begins to interrogate them, takes them out rather handily. And one of them foolishly tries to headbutt Superman and Nightwing makes a joke about it. So it's sort of, Tom Taylor does a good job. He knows these characters. The dialogue is good. The banter is good. The art by Redundo is, Redundo is fantastic. Uh, not a lot happens in the issue. So if I'm going to be critical, I wish there'd have been a little bit more movement. Uh, but after this is done, they go back to uh, uh, Lois Lane's, I, I'm assuming it's John's John Kent's apartment or Lois Lane. And there's some, uh, there's some, there's a good heart to heart between some bonding between Dick Grayson and uh, John Kent. John Kent confides in uh, Dick Grayson. He says something very interesting. Uh, he says that he was actually gone for five years on another Earth. So we all thought it was seven years. Apparently, he was only on Earth three for five years, from when he was eleven to sixteen years old. So Tom Taylor is clarifying for us readers in this sort of new omniverse exactly how long John Kent spent on on this other on this other earth and uh you know in, in those formative years where he aged up and dick grayson offers lois lane a job at the truth and lois lane is going to consider it and so that's interesting i uh yeah and uh, dick or uh, john ken confides in in nightwing that when he was trapped on earth three in that volcano uh, and terrorized psychologically by ultraman I mean, he he kept thinking and hoping that he would be rescued by Dick Grayson, uh, which is a callback to that scene we got last issue where where John Kent remembered being found and uh, found by Nightwing and Batman and or uh, then an older Dick Grayson Robin where he juggled for for a young John Kent and it was a nice callback here. So everything that John that Tom Taylor has scripted here has been very intentional, very deliberate, and it's in his in its his own way. He loves to do fan service, and Tom Taylor, we know, likes to tug at the heartstrings and create those emotional moments of bonding and rapport, which I think he does to great effect in this issue. So, I enjoyed it. What do you think? 
Yeah, this was actually my favorite comic of the week. Um, you're right. It doesn't give a whole lot of forward momentum in the, in the story of Bendix and Lex Luthor and the Rising. But what it has is a lot of humor and a lot of heart. Uh, and I think that's exactly what Taylor and Redondo set out to do. I mean, that that's usually what they are doing over in their Nightwing book. So the art is, is fantastic, whether it's, you know, double exposure from Bruno Redondo, uh, which he does, you know, many times, or I, I shouldn't say double, but multiple exposure where it's the same, it's one panel, but we see Nightwing in that panel multiple times showing movement, something uh, Mikhail Yanin does to great effect. Um, you know, Nightwing, when he gets thrown off the roof, that's a fantastic scene. He's literally has his uh, hands behind his head, his, his ankles are crossed. He's falling backwards off the roof with a smile on his face. It's just, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Uh, and then later when he, when he swings back up onto the roof, um, when the, these guys are fighting Superman and uh, he's like, Oh, how's it going? Superman says, ah, they seem pretty angry, you know, as they're punching and kicking and firing uh, energy beams at him. And he's just kind of shrugging it off. Uh, and then uh, when an errant energy beam heads toward Nightwing and he just casually, you know, moves his head to the side. <laughs> said, yeah. um, and then, yeah, that moment where that guy headbutts Superman, <laughs> he's like, wow, who's head stupid enough to headbutt Superman? <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just there's so much fun in the book in this interaction between um, Dick Grayson and, and John Kent, um, which then later kind of pays off when we see how much John really looks up. To, to Dick, you know, so that's, uh, that's fantastic as well. And also a good job from uh, Tom Taylor showing us how, uh, how John really wears his heart on his sleeve, you know, like even when this guy um, that, uh, that headbutts him, that they, they, they're going to keep him and interrogate him. And Bendix is like, no, nah, I'm not going to let that happen. And he sets off a bomb in planted in this guy's head, a la uh, Amanda Waller. And John just feels so, so terrible. Like the look on his face and, you know, and Dick understands that, uh, it's not John's fault at all, but Dick even says, he's like, I'm not going to tell you to stop feeling guilty because I know that's not going to do any good because that's, you know, that's who you are. And I, I understand that. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, almost the whole second half of the book is all kind of emotional moments or set up for what's going forward. Uh, I think the most important thing is this idea that um, that Dick Grayson has invested in the truth. And he asks Lois Lane, it's like, hey, people will they'll give more credence to, to news or information if there's a face to it as opposed to it being anonymous and who's more trusted in the DC universe in terms of being a, a reporter and digging up dirt than Lois Lane. So I, I think that's an important aspect and it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be curious to see how that plays out. So yeah, fantastic art, a lot of great moments. I, I, I selfishly wish that Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo could do two book, you know, Bruno Redondo could, draw two books a month um, and we could get Taylor and Redondo on both yeah. Uh, because yeah, it's just his art is so fantastic. And I love his rendition of John thought it was done really well also. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next we have Naomi season two, number one. This is from writers, Brian Michael Bendis and David F Walker. Jamal Campbell does the art Wes Abbott on letters. Um, this one was, I enjoyed it. I'm surprised actually that we didn't get more recap of what happened in the first series because Bendis tends to, to like to do that. So uh, I'm glad that that wasn't the case. Instead, we, we focused on her moving forward. Um, 
But again, uh, like a lot of this, the books, um, there's not a whole heck of a lot that happens here uh, until like the last couple pages. It's, it's a lot of setup and it's some fallout, some consequences of what Naomi learned about herself in the first series and kind of the fallout and the way her parents were treating her differently, especially her dad, who's actually a Thanagarian, uh, worked for like Thanagarian intelligence and was sent to Earth a long time ago. And was supposed to be, or I, I take that back. He's not Thanagarian. He's from Ran. He's uh, the the other guy. D is a Thanagarian, uh, but Naomi's adopted father is from Ran. He's in Ran Intelligence. Was supposed to be, you know, gathering intelligence for a, a potential Ran invasion. And so he wants Naomi to understand her powers and her limits and what she can do and what she can't do. But at the end of the day, he's a dad, and you know his expectations aren't exactly logical. So that's causing some friction. So again, it's it's a lot of emotional stuff that's going on here in terms of just moving the story forward and thus finding out more about Naomi. There's not much here until that other alien that's a part of Naomi's life that, that is Thanagarian D, who's the the town mechanic, disappears at the end of the issue, um, was supposed to come over to the McDuffie, the, the McDuffie's house for dinner, didn't show up. And Naomi goes looking unbeknownst to her her dad is there looking as well and of course that causes friction what are you doing here and naomi's worried that her dad may have had something to do with these uh, disappearance so there's a little bit of drama and tension but it doesn't happen until the the end the the drama and tension in the majority of the issues is more about kind of emotional drama or family drama so yeah i'm if i have any complaint about the naomi series or her as a character uh, overall, um, as much as I enjoyed the first series, it, it's it moves at a snail's pace, uh, and I think she's an interesting character and she has a lot of potential. But we know so little still, you know. We've talked about this before how she's been out for like over two years now, and we still know so little, and that is what contributes to a feeling sometimes of, yeah, oh, she's a member of the Justice League now. It doesn't feel earned because we don't. She hasn't done anything. She hasn't been in enough stuff, you know, but. Let's put her. I mean, and I get it. Like she's a Bendis creation, and Bendis is writing Justice League. So, where else is he going to put her? Um, and again, I don't know why it's coming out so slow. If I had to guess, I mean, I know Jamal Campbell's not the fastest artist, although his art is gorgeous and beautiful. But you know, if it takes him this long, it just it, it makes it feel like we're it's trickling. You know, we're getting the story at a snail's pace, like I said, and it's, it's frustrating because I want to know more about her. I think she's an interesting character and has a lot of potential. And if from the time that she had come out, if she had just imagine if she had a monthly comic that was up to like issue 27 or whatever by now, we would know so much about her, so much more about her rather than we still don't know hardly anything. So that's where my frustration. They've created such an interesting character that I want to know more about, but yet it's coming out so slow. So it's, it just feels like really slow paced. So but I did enjoy it. What do you think? Well, uh, first, I, I have to, I mean, literally right on the very first panel of the very first page, it says, one of Naomi's friends says, you know, it's only been like three weeks. And it, that is ridiculously comical because, okay, we, we know it's comic book time and we definitely have to suspend our disbelief. But think of everything that Naomi has been through and we as readers have been through since Naomi Volume 1 came out. We've gone through death metal. 
Naomi has been a member of the Justice League and has fought, fought uh, has has fought numerous villains. She's been to her her own home world already. She her parents have visited the uh, the Hall of Justice. They've had adventures there. They've been in, they've met Justice League Dark. Uh, Naomi has battled uh, Xanodorth. Xanodorth. Uh, uh, Naomi has had all these adventures uh, through Young Justice through tw- fourteen issues of Young Justice, and we are to believe that only three weeks have passed. While, I mean, <laughs> there's no way that all those events through Checkmate, that only three weeks have passed. As a matter of fact, it doesn't add up at all because we know as a fact that almost a year has passed in the transition from Checkmate into the current president incarnation of the of the Justice League. Nothing, yeah, nothing. That's, assuming, that's assuming that this isn't happening. Like maybe this happened before, you know, again, comic, comic book time. I get well, it. Yeah, no. I'll also mention that we've gone through a whole goddamn pandemic that's killed 6 million people. But well, yeah, three weeks. Yeah, yeah, no. I agree with you. Yeah. No, no, no question. And, but I mean, I, I, I suppose in, in fairness, uh, there has been some editorial uh, hiccups but with between AT&T buying DDC and then we're going to know we're getting a discovery acquisition. So, I mean, there's, there's stuff going on behind the scenes too. But in any event... I actually thought that this was a nice summary of what came before. I actually thought the dialogue was not as, uh, I thought the dialogue was much better than in the first volume. And uh, I, I, I like that there's the volume, that, that the exposition and the dialogue doesn't drown out, out the fantastic art of Jamal Campbell. And I, you know, even the, uh, I'm glad that, you know, the, the scene with the psychologist or the counselor that Naomi's talking to, talking about her life, I guess that was, that, that, that is an effective way to sort of catch readers up because whether we like it or not, it's been a long time since volume one. And I think we got a good job here of getting us up to speed. And, you know, he doesn't spend a lot of time shoving it down our throats, every single aspect of what we already know, because I think Bendis knows that all of us know a lot about Naomi already. And so I kind of like how things are going here. Her father, her wanting to train her, he, he's Ranian. And we know that his, his best friend is a Thanagarian. We, we know that history. And we know that Naomi wants to go and find out more about her past. All that's coming to a head. And, um, you know, again, stumbling upon at the end of this issue where clearly the Thanagarian, her Thanagarian, her dad's Thanagarian friend D, somebody she also confides in. He's he appears to be missing. Uh, it's I think this is a good start. I mean, there's look if if you've been on board for Naomi Volume One and you're a fan of Naomi, this is something we've been waiting for for a very long time, and it's nice to finally get it because. Even the heaviest detractors of Bendis, and at times I've been that in, in terms of uh, his work on Superman, the fact of the matter is is that I've always wanted to get volume two of Naomi because I think this is probably his best work at DC. And uh, it is a TV show for a reason, so obviously the powers that be at uh, Warner Brothers have put a lot of faith in the, in, the, in, the, in the property. And so it's nice to see this volume two come out, and it's a good start to a volume two. Yeah, uh, and she has her own TV show. We might have forgot to mention that. That also happened in three weeks. Apparently. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Pretty good yep. for three weeks of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I know it, it's like Bendis is almost a victim of his own success. You know, he's super busy doing other things besides, com- besides comics, you know, like the Legion of Superheroes animated series. So, uh, all right, up next, here's another book that, you know, from the beginning, I've had some issues with it. But man, have the last two issues been good. It's I Am Batman number seven, 
Written by John Ridley, Christian Ducey is the artist, Rex Locus on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. I think maybe I just needed Jace Fox to be out of Gotham, be out of the shadow of Batman, um, because I, I really like what John Ridley is doing here. You know, last issue, his first issue in New York, and I, I don't know if it's Ridley wants to ground it a little more in reality, because it does feel like, it, you know, based on what we know of the DCU, this would be a little more of how things would be, where the, the mayor says, no, you're not going to operate, you know, uh, as a vigilante here without some kind of uh, oversight. And so they, they put him on the payroll. They, they pay him a dollar. He gets a dollar a year so they can say he's an employee of the city and they'll work with him. And obviously there's a lot of kinks to be ironed out and it's going to cause some issues. Already the police commissioner seems like a real prick and and, and just a, a, you know, head in the sand, throwback. This is not the way things are done. It just doesn't just a Luddite, you know, just a, somebody who, who completely uh, doesn't. He only cares about himself, only cares about his power. Like if you're the police commissioner, don't you want every resource you can to, to protect the city, protect the citizens? Like, isn't that your job as as you know, a police officer? And you're you're at at the top at the top of the heap. But no, he only cares about how it reflects on him. How you know he's probably corrupt and worried about what this bodes for the future. But I don't know. I just like the tone and the feel. This idea of uh, him working, uh, of Batman, of Jace Fox working with uh, the police department. Now the the team that he's been assigned again. You know, partly due to the fact that the mayor's got involved and he wants to make it look diverse. Uh, it's not exactly, and they even comment on it. It's not exactly, you know, New York's finest. They got a woman who's got a ton of HR complaints. They got a guy who uh, has a bunch of uh, excessive force complaints against him. And then they've got, you know, the, the two detectives uh, of which Chubb, you know, we saw back in, in Gotham and now she's in New York. And man, for his, uh, Effective as a leader as she is and as good of a cop as she is, she she really complains a lot. She doesn't come across as, you know, yeah. very uh, <laughs> open minded here. You know, she's a firecracker. She's quite she's quite vocal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost to the point of of you of disliking her. But to John Ridley's credit and to Chubb's credit, at the end that already seems to be changing when the, they do some good work. When when uh, Chubb's team the, this tasks special something task force, which they call the, you know, the bat task force, which, you know, they don't like being called that um, spe special operations task force is what they are, but they call them strike force bat, which they, they kind of resent because they're, you know, a lot more than Batman. Um, but yeah, when they actually work with Batman, when Jace Fox gives them some Intel and it, it leads to uh, uh, busting these six guys that are, dealing a bunch of advanced weapons, then, you know, she starts to, to maybe realize, Hey, maybe this is going to work out. So I like that in the course of one issue, we got some growth from, from Chubb. So yeah, I, I like the groundedness of it. I like Jace Fox being out of Gotham city out from under the shadow of Batman. Like literally I like the distinction where he says, I'm, I'm a Batman, not the Batman. Um, uh, you know, it, it's a way to differentiate. I still, there's still a part of me that does wish that they had called him something else. Uh, but at the same time, now that he's kind of out from under Gotham City and, and in New York and more on his own and feels like more of an independent hero, I'm starting to see more and I'm, I'm coming around more to the idea of him being Batman. Um, just because of everything that that, that name entails, like the, the legacy of it, what it represents in terms of 
you know, fighting for the underdog and that sort of thing. But I don't know. Part of me wishes maybe that 5G had happened. Like, if we're going to do this, let's, can we take Bruce Wayne off the table? But at the same time, that feels like it's been done so many times, you know, whether it's Nightfall or uh, Battle for the Cowl or, or whatever, Batman R.I.P. So I don't know. I think John really is doing the best with the hand he's dealt. And I, I really enjoyed this. And I also thought the Christian Ducey art was was really fantastic, especially the color work. Um, you know, much like the, the Batman movie, which took place mostly at night. Mm-hmm. I expect this story to take mostly at night, take <laughs> place mo- mostly at night. It's a Batman comic. Uh, I did see some reviews about the Batman that people were complaining. God, it's so dark. Why is it nighttime all the time? Have you never? It's Batman. He goes out at night. It's Batman. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You expect it to be out in the middle of the day? What's going on here? So anyway, I enjoyed this. Uh, I'm much more on board with this series. The last couple of issues have been fantastic. What do you think? Uh, the final page reveal about this new character, Man Ray, I'm assuming that's his name. He looks pretty cool. Looks interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Christian, yeah, that, that iron with nails in it, he has. Yeah, like, he, looks, he looks deadly. He looks pretty kick-ass. Definitely, he looks like a character you'd normally expect to see in Gotham. But like like Detective Chubb says to uh, Batman Jace uh, in this issue, uh, she like bugs him saying, you know, you arrive in New York City and suddenly we get all this uh, Gotham-like scum. Is that a coincidence? Come on. Uh, in any event, it's... Uh, I like this. The rapport between Detective Chubbs, uh, the dialogue between Detective Chubb uh, and Batman, was, the back and forth was excellent. The opening issue, Detective Chubb, her partner, Detective Whitaker, Mike Tanaka and Michonne Mueller are, her, are the other people part of the uh, of this strike force, Bat Task Force. Commissioner Beckett, uh, clearly John Ridley is doing something different than the, the, the relationship between Commissioner Gordon and Batman in Gotham City is very close knit. Uh, at least when Kish- Commissioner, when Jim Gordon was commissioner, the relationship between Batman Jace and Commissioner Beckett in New York City, there isn't one. Commissioner Beckett resents the fact he doesn't like. He's old school. He doesn't think we should be. They should be working with Batman. He's against it. Mayor Villanueva is the one that wants it. She's pushing it. I find it very interesting that they're putting Batman on the payroll and just paying him a dollar a year. And uh, and just a, a little bit of a legal note here, which might play, you know, I don't know how John Ridley, how familiar John Ridley is with the law, but uh, whenever you become an agent of the state, you have an obligation to to implement due process when you apprehend criminals. Because if you're an agent of the state, you got to follow the Constitution. You got to follow the laws. You can get away with a lot more when you're a vigilante and you're not an agent of the state. Arguably, uh, you can't do that if you're an actually agent of the state. And if you're paid a dollar, suddenly then, you know, Batman just attacking and assaulting criminals and hitting first, that can be very problematic. I'm not, you know, not trying to get too much into the law on that. But, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways there's that can be a serious hindrance uh, and a potential defense to any villains in New York City should uh, Jace ever apprehend them, so uh, that's just the lawyer side of me, sort of thinking this might be kind of cool. I've I've always uh, I've always enjoyed Daredevil that way, the way that uh, different writers have implemented, the, have brought in criminal justice elements in Daredevil. We might get more of it here in Batman. Who knows with John Ridley? Uh, it's worth noting that we have seen, we finally get some dialogue with a character we've never heard from before in terms of uh, dialogue, and that is Tammy Fox, who is recovering finally from being in a coma. Uh, recovering from fear state. Uh, she's in a conversation with her sister, uh, uh, Tanya, uh, pardon me, uh, Tammy and, uh, uh, 
uh, or Tiffany. She's and it's clear. So I mean, Ridley is developing that relationship as as Tammy recovers. Tiffany has some has some issues with her brothers. I think both Luke and Jace. And Tammy is. You get the sense that Tammy's a little bit more optimistic, perhaps the younger, more naive one. And anyways, I'm I'm looking more. Uh, I'm interested to see where where John Ridley takes that. Tanya Fox, the mother, does not like. Still doesn't really like Batman. Is has some has some sec, does doesn't know that her son is Batman. Doesn't really like Task Force Batman, but she she'll deal with she'll accept it if it's going to get things done. Um, it's uh, I agree with you. This is a great setup for Batman moving forward. This does not feel like this doesn't feel like a Batman. This does not feel like a Batman analog to me. This feels like a different Batman, and I like it. This. Uh, he's starting to develop. He he is his own Batman, and that's what I like about it. And I even like there's a degree of um, humility here on the part of uh, Jace Fox, uh, Jace Fox Batman, by saying I am not the Batman. I'm a Batman. But I'm not the Batman, as you as you stated. And I think it works very well. And the art by Christian Ducey is just it really is fantastic. So I'm definitely I'm. This is so much better than the the those earlier issues. The last this is so much better these last two issues than the whole year previous of 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 the uh, this next Batman. So I'm quite I'm quite happy with this as well. Yeah, I really think they just needed to get him out of Gotham. Just let him be out there on his own, doing his own thing. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, last book we're going to talk about uh, on this one. We are going to do a, a special Trial of the Amazons episode. So if you're Tune in for that. Go go check out that separate one. Uh, but it's Superman versus Lobo, book three. Now, <laughs> in fairness, this this is really late. Uh, there were some editorial issues, paper shortage, whatnot. This was actually supposed to come out in December. So I had to go back and reread issue two to remember what the heck was going on. Uh, but this is written by Tim Seeley and Sarah Beatty. Mirka Andolfo does the art. Eric Prianto on colors. Fabio Emilia on letters. And I should also mention uh, that I got a chance to talk to Tim Seeley, and that episode is dropping today as well. We talked about Superman versus Lobo, as well as Robbins and some of his other work that he has uh, coming out right now. So, uh, yeah, this was a, a really good balance between these two characters who are really philosophically on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, what do you think of how this wrapped up, Rocky? I, I I liked it. Uh, as I said, Tim Seeley surprised me. I never, I up until him doing Superman v Lobo, uh, and even a little bit with his Robins, I didn't think the guy. I never th- thought of the guys being particularly good at humor. Uh, but he made me laugh. He made me openly laugh at parts in this entire uh, three book narrative. Uh, I want to give a shout out to this looks uh, this one cover here. This looks like uh, Daniel Warren Johnson's art. Um. um Anyways, it's fantastic. It, is, yeah. it has Lobo with chains it wrapped is. around Superman's neck. Is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it yeah. is Daniel Warren Johnson. Yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. It just reminds me of his work on Wonder Woman Dead Earth. It looks really, really good. But uh, in any event, uh, Marco Andolfo, the artist, wrote this series. It it works quite quite well here. Uh, the, what what stands out for me in this in this final in this uh, final issue is uh, the. Finally, I mean, this issue, the central conceit of this narrative is Superman essentially being on Zarnia and in the past, uh, which was the planet that Lobo ultimately destroyed his own home planet. And then Lobo being on Krypton, uh, sent back to Krypton, of course, Superman's planet. Both were planets that were ultimately doomed for destruction. And through an extraordinary series of events, they end up back on each other's planets. And... uh, 
in, in many ways, Lobo, uh, Lobo <laughs> makes fun of Superman here in this issue uh, because he he brags about how how much better how much much better it was when when Lobo did things his way, and of course he makes kind of embarrasses and humiliates Superman through the dialogue, and then Superman turns the tables on him, and and I think that there's there's sort of a you can kind of see both sides of the story, and and they both end up ultimately being you know. Well, Lobo very reluctantly, Lobo will never admit anything, but there's a tacit amount of respect there. Tim Seeley does a really good job here of, of nailing the characters of Lobo and Superman. Lobo is unapologetically Lobo. That's what Tim Seeley understands so well. He's unapologetically Lobo. He even charges for it. I mean, he even charges a woman here for, for his time and for helping her out. And he does so unapologetic, unapologetically. And of course, Superman is unapologetically Superman. And these two very, very different moral compasses collide catastrophically in this series to comedic effect, but also with a lesson to be had. And uh, again, I, I actually maybe it's just because I'm, I'm finally getting used to Mark Andolfo's art because it is something that had to grow on me. It's uh, I know she, uh, um, uh, it's is it a he or a she, Mirko? It's a she. It's a she. Uh, thank you. I, I assume that, but I, I always I, – I screwed up the gender last time we did a review. So anyways, um, but it, it's grown on me because I wasn't initially a fan of this particular style, but it, it suits this and it, it, it took a while for me to get used to it, but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, this is um, – uh, lots of, uh, I like, uh, there was, uh, the appearance of, uh, Zealot here was quite good. We got like, uh, like the old Wildcats and, uh, Maul and Union and Hellspond. And this is a good, it definitely sort of a nineties feel to it with some of these characters. <laughs> I, um, a lot of violence, of course, typical Lobo violence. I, you know, look. If you're a fan of Lobo, I say again, I've said for the when we reviewed the first two issues, th this is something that you're going to enjoy, and uh, uh, you know it's it's got my it's got my recommendation. I, I do think I'm probably going to pick this up in hardcover because I've I've I enjoy it. I enjoy it that much. It kind of makes me want to have a Lobo series, and uh, I I you know I, I with just Lobo, and I say that with all due respect to Crush. While I didn't like. I didn't mind Lobo and Crush with that series by uh, Marika Tamaki. I still, I'm a Lobo fan. What can I say? And uh, what do you think of this? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And again, I, I encourage everybody to go listen to the conversation I had with Tim Seeley about, you know, what he was trying to do here in case it, it's not clear. Um, and he, we talked, Tim and I talked about how 90s of a character Lobo is and how popular he was and you know, he reiterated that Lobo is a villain at the end of the day. The, you know, the guys that created him didn't create him to be a hero or even an anti-hero. But the thing is, it's almost like, in a way, what the 90s were, the way co comics almost steered into who Lobo was, you know, in the 90s when everything was dark and gritty and everybody was an anti-hero. And all of a sudden, Lobo was very much um, kind of the poster child for that. And, that I mean, that's what's happening here. Like, like Rocky said, I mean, Lobo... He meets up with all these, and it was great to see these all these last sons, you know, Hellspont and Zealot and Maul and everybody. And and Lobo, you know, he 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 takes the power of of the little being that that is is sort of the the reason that all this madness has been happening, and he creates his own kind of Lobo universe. You know, he goes goes back to that quote unquote Wildstorm universe, and and you know, trying to teach Superman a lesson. And 
you know, it's the same lesson he was trying to teach in the first issue when he when he took over the Lexer app, you know, the, the social media app that Lex Luthor had uh, had created and was bad mouthing Superman. It's that, like Rocky was saying, when uh, Lobo was on Krypton, they don't want to be people don't want to be good. That's too hard to make good choices and, and to be morally right. They want to just do whatever the hell they want to do and 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 sin and be corrupt and, and whatever. And, and so that's the, the universe that Lobo creates when he gets the power to do so. Uh, and then guess what? It doesn't really work out quite the way he thinks it will. And for maybe the first time ever, and there's a version of Batman in that universe that shows up and he's like, Lobo admitting he was wrong. Wait, where does it, where did that ever? And then he, he disappears. So yeah, I mean, this, this very much, if you're a Superman fan, this very much is kind of almost Tim Seeley putting a stamp of approval on, on who Superman is in terms of Superman is like Rocky said, unapologetically the good guy. You know, that's what makes him super. It's not his powers. And again, it's it's a it's a little tropey and it's a little cliche because the story's been told before. It's not the actual superpowers that make Superman who he is. It's it's, you know, his his desire to help everybody all the time and to always make the right choice. That's who who Superman is. And at the end of the day, that's the lesson that that Lobo learns. But does he really learn it? Because he ends up <laughs> coming back to our universe and deciding to start a. Uh, a podcast universe where he's going to badmouth Batman. Uh, so the whole idea of, you know, Batman eats babies from the whole Tom King, Mitch Garrett's um, uh, Mr. Miracle run. Yeah. Now, now Lobo's spreading the rumor that Superman eats babies. Uh, so yeah, it, again, a lot of fun, a lot of humor. Uh, I agree with you about the Mir- uh, Mirko and Dolfo art. It, it works here, but this is not the style of art I'm used to seeing from her. You know, usually her style's a little more cartoony, a little more animated style, a little more cutesy uh, and sexy. Um, so this was a departure. Uh, but yeah, it definitely works for the series. So yeah, worked. And uh, I agree with you that this was a, a really, really great series. And again, I, I can't stress her, but go listen to me. Talk to Tim about it because we talked about this. We talked about the King Shark series. We talked about Robbins. We talked about um, his uh, campaign he has going on for the first thing he ever did called Hell Bunny and Mr. Hell, which is a crater own. Uh, there's a Zoop campaign running right now. And then we also talked a little bit about Loaded Bible. So go check it out. Uh, so again, that's it for the, the single issues we're going to talk about here. Go listen to our uh, Trial of the Amazons episode if you want to hear about uh, Nubia and the Amazons issue six and Trial of the Amazons number one. Uh, also, I want to mention out from DC today, there's a couple of collections. We have uh, The Conjuring, The Lover hardcover. Uh, also, DC poster portfolio with a bunch of Dark Knight's metal uh, pinups. There's a Superman and the Legion of Superheroes tabloid edition hardcover. There is a Noontine Titans Volume 13 trade paperback, which is still reprinting a lot of the um, Marv Wolfman, George Perez stuff. There's Teen Titans Academy Volume 1 hardcover, which, you know, your mileage may vary, but Rocky and I aren't big fans of that, but it is out. Uh, also, Green Arrow Stranded uh, trade paperback, which is, um, I think it's one of those uh, young adult uh, trade paperbacks, so you can check that out. And then finally, Action Comics Volume 1, War World Rising trade paperback, which collects the first arc of uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson's run on Action Comics. So a lot of collections out today. Uh, and again, Trial of the Amazons kicks off as well. Go check out our spotlight uh, on that Uh Anything you want to tease uh, other content you have coming out, Rocky, before we sign off here? Uh, no, not, not at this time. I got, uh, I got, a, I got some rant and rave videos I'm thinking about, but nothing, 
Nothing in particular. Uh, I've uh, I did a I did a Batman. I finally I I basically ranted against the Batman movie, which I w- I saw on the weekend, and I uh, not a you know it wasn't my cup of tea, so I, I I let go, and it was very therapeutic for me and people if they want if they want to see me at my ranting worst or best, depending on your point of view, you can check that out. <laughs> yeah, speaking of best, uh, Rocky and I also finally got our best of 2021 out. That's better, right. better late than never. Yeah. Uh, that was a lot of fun to go back and talk about some of the best series. So we we pick our winners, but we also mention a lot of other really worthy titles and creators that uh, had work come out in 2021. So go listen to that if you uh, are looking for some new stuff or some some older stuff. You know, stuff that's available either on the DC Universe app or Marvel Comics Unlimited. You can get it for cheaper. Uh, you're looking for for stuff to read that's new to you, definitely go and check that out. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Don't forget to head over to Rocky's YouTube channel. Just do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Like this video, subscribe, hit that notification bell so you know when new content comes out. Uh, also, be sure you're subscribed to The Comic Source on whatever uh, podcasting app or um, podcasting platform you prefer so you don't miss any of our uh, audio only content that's coming out like our spawn daily and a lot of the interviews i'm doing uh, jh williams interview dropped yesterday talking about echo lands he's a fantastic artist it was so fun to talk to him uh, echo lands is landscape rather than portrait orientation and there's a lot of uh, things you don't think about when when that's going on plus just all the inspirations you know things from the terminator to shogun warriors uh, our inspirations for that book. It's so much fun and it was just fantastic. One, one of the most fun interviews I've done in a while talking to JH. So definitely go and check it out. Uh, so that's going to do it for this one, everybody. Uh, we appreciate you listening as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The readings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.